Welcome to the New Life Podcast, a ministry of New Life Presbyterian Church in Ithaca, New York. Today we have this week's sermon preached by Tim LaCroix, our senior pastor. Join us for worship each week at 10 o'clock at 950 Danby Road, Ithaca, New York. You can also visit us on our website, www.newlifeithaca.org. Now here's this week's sermon. The gospel this morning comes from St. Matthew, chapter 2, 13 through 18. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The Gospel of the Lord. Two weeks ago, I told you a story of a miracle, at least something that people were calling a miracle. Happened in Clarksville, Tennessee, when the tornadoes came through the Saturday before. And months before, there was a Christmas concert scheduled for the very moment the tornado came, except it was rescheduled months before so that the concert was held the previous Saturday. But without being rescheduled, the tornado would have hit at the precise moment that they were having their concert with 300 people inside. And the owner of this music school in Clarksville, Tennessee, is a believer, and he gave thanks to God for this wonderful provision. This week, I read another story about that tornado. I read the story of Catherine Burnham. She was on a plane returning from Washington, D.C., She was on a trip for work, and as she was about to get on the plane, she was reading the story of the alerts about the weather. So she got on the phone, and she talked to her two preteen children, reminding them of the protocol, what happens, reminding them they are to go to the safe room in the house, which is the bathroom, reminding them that they are to get into the bathtub if there's a tornado warning, put their hands over their heads. Her their father, her husband, uh, had been scheduled to go to work, and since the overlap was small between her landing and him going to work, they decided that the kids would stay at home, and so they did. When Catherine landed, her phone began to blow up, and she soon learned that the tornado had been a direct hit on her house, and one of her children was dead. They had gone into the safe room. They had gone into the bathroom. They had done everything she said. But the tornado took one of them, her son. Now this, this story, these two stories are a stark reminder that 
at times there are beautiful and wonderful providences that we celebrate, but at the same time, actually very same instant, there was horrible tragedy. So what, what are we to do with this? These horrible, horrible things happening in the midst of these beautiful, wonderful things. Is this just the way the world is? If God was good to, for his provision to move the concert, what does that say about God that he did not spare this woman's son? In the text today, we have a reminder, a similar reminder, that until the return of Christ, even though on Christmas morning when Christ was born, the war was over, the battle still rages. We are still at war, and we are still fighting against an enemy. Much like in World War II, when the war was effectively over, when the Allies landed at Normandy, they still had to fight for years until the surrender. This is a good analogy for Christian history and the progress of Christ's kingdom. When Christ was born, that was like Normandy. Godhead, the Godhead had made a, a beach landing in this great battle against evil. And it was such a happy occasion that the heavens opened up and angels descended and choirs erupted. It was a beautiful and joyous occasion. And we have all been celebrating, rightly so, celebrating the birth of Christ over this past week. This story is situated where it is, though, to remind us that although the war is effectively over, the battle still rages. And we still have to fight. What we read in the text today is a reminder that we have a great enemy. Now, the Apostle Paul is very clear. We're going to read this in a moment from Ephesians chapter 6. Chapter 6, yes. We do not wage war against flesh and blood. This is the difference between Christian holy war and perhaps other religions' holy war. Our holy war is not against other people. We do not fight against other people. Our holy war is waged against, Paul says in Ephesians, against the rulers and authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We battle against that great ancient enemy as is described in Revelation, the book of Revelation, is called the great serpent, who is Satan. And what we read in the text today is that great enemy renewing one of his oldest strategies. Ever since the Garden of Eden, and we talked about this last Sunday morning, after Adam and Eve sinned, as God was delivering his judgment upon his creation and his curse upon the serpent, in Genesis 3.15, one of the most important verses in the Bible that we should all have memorized, not necessarily because of effort, but because you hear it so much, that 
that God put a curse upon the serpent and said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head. That sound familiar? But the verse continues. And you will bruise his heel. So that ancient enemy that the book of Revelation reveals the serpent was Satan. That ancient enemy has been about bruising humanity's heel. And one of his most, uh, his oldest tactics and most brutal tactics is to attack the seed of the woman. If the seed of the woman is going to come and destroy him, he's just going to take out all the children. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. It, the, the narrative of this holy war in the Old Testament between the forces of good and the forces of evil is essentially the evil one attacking the seed of the woman, the children, and attacking the women, the child bearers. Many of the conflicts we see are, are, are related to this because the devil strategized that if he can simply wipe out the descendants of this woman, he can win. The primary example of this in the Old Testament is, of course, in Egypt. Right? You remember the story in Egypt where Pharaoh was possessed by the devil and concocted this plan to wipe out the heritage of, of Israel by killing all the male boys. And Moses, of course, had to be saved by being put into a little ark, floated down the river where he entered into the house of Pharaoh himself. Here we have the story in Matthew chapter 2 that is eerily similar, right? Herod is possessed by the devil. He is now acting in the place of Satan. He is going to take out the seed of the woman. They have this information delivered, them, delivered to them by the wise men. They know exactly where uh, the child is to be born because they're Biblical scholars looked it up in the Bible, and it says so. The, the wise men give them a time frame, and now Herod, again, possessed by Satan. Satan has a tar target. If he wipes out, if he carpet bombs this city, he can win. This is a reminder, though, that although we do not wage war against flesh and blood, the evil one uses flesh and blood against us. And we have to be careful. But the thing we have to remember is that that does not mean that we fight against humans. But we have to be wise. We have to be wise like Joseph was wise. You see, we don't find in the New Testament people taking up arms. In fact, Jesus very intentionally does not endorse the tactics of the zealots. There were people in Jesus' day who believed that the Jews should do like the Maccabeans did. If you've ever read the story of the Maccabees, they took up arms and they drove out uh, the oppressor of Israel. There were people in Jerusalem and Judea at that time who believed that they should take up arms and push out the Romans. Jesus did not take up that tactic. When Peter took his sword and, and, and chopped off the ear of the high priest's servant, he told him to put his sword away and he healed the servant. Jesus intentionally, although he, there are zealots or former zealots among his disciples, they are redeemed zealots and they put away their zealotry. Now we find in the New Testament that we are not to take vengeance. We are not to engage in warfare. That, that Jesus' warfare is different. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. So Joseph does not take up arms. And we don't find the strategy of taking up arms in 
in, in the Christian teach, in Christian teaching. But what we see Joseph doing here is heeding the warning of the angel and taking measures to protect his family. And so he goes down to Egypt. And the Holy Family goes down as uh, refugees in a foreign country, uh, under uh, asylum, under threat of their own government, and they live there for a number of years. We aren't told exactly how long. So we are at war. That is the thing we have to remember. You know, this is, this, is, this is what this story reminds us of. Christmas is wonderful and beautiful, and we have wonderful things to celebrate in our lives and often do. But we are still at war. There's been a trend in recent years, and I saw several of my friends who are pastors having something called Blue Christmas. You ever heard of this? Blue Christmas? It's an opportunity to say that Christmas is not fun for everybody. Right? Which makes complete sense. And so they have a service. It's called Blue Christmas. And, um, and they, they lament and they grieve. This is really what Advent's all about. If, if, you, if we do Advent, it is, it, is, it is leaning into the darkness and brokenness of this world and longing for a Savior. But this is also what the first Sunday after Christmas is about. It's about understanding that although Christ has come and it's a wonderful thing to celebrate, there's still an awful lot of tragedy in this world. And the reason why there is evil and tra- tragedy is because we have an enemy. We are at war. So if we are at war and we're not supposed to take up arms and we're not supposed to wage war against people, how are we supposed to do this? How are we to engage in warfare? Well, friends, you're doing it right now. Christians wage warfare, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, sorry, Ephesians chapter 6. This is what Paul says. He says, stand therefore. Uh, Take up the whole armor of God. This is in verse 13. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened the belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This is how we wage warfare. We wage warfare against the evil one. We continue to fight by gathering together and praying, as we just done. By singing hymns and reading and praying psalms together. By reading scripture and hearing it taught. By participating in the sacraments of God. This is our warfare. This is our warfare. And every single person has a part to play. You see, because it's not just for the, for, the, for the strong and for the mighty, but every single person in God's family is a part of his army. Even the children. You know, back when, going back to Moses and Pharaoh, in Exodus chapter 10, after the eighth plague, which was the plague of locusts, Pharaoh had finally had enough. I don't know, I guess locusts were just one, were just too much for, for Pharaoh. 
And he said, I want you to go. I want you take your men and go in the desert and worship your God. And Moses said, no. We will go with our young. We will go with our old. We will go with our men, our women, and our children. Everybody will go. And then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It, it, it may seem to some in this, in this era where increasingly people are becoming more uh, bellicose, I guess you might say, uh, taking up arms in a, in a verbal fashion, sometimes in a physical fashion. It, it may look at the tactics that I'm describing as weak, you know, as, 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 as not strong enough for the battle that we have in front of us. You know, there may be people who say we need to do more. We need to, we need to do more to defend ourselves. But no, this, these are the tactics which the Lord prescribes. Everyone will go. This was not a good strategy for war. If you go into war with the women and the children and the old people and the sick, they're, they're going to not be able to travel as fast. They're not going to be able to fight as hard. But the lesson of the Old Testament is that the people of God succeed when God fights their battles for them. The people of God succeed when they trust God and God fights for them. If there's any lesson in the Old Testament, it's that. And the lesson of the Exodus is they go with their young and they go with their old and their little ones. And they go up against the Red Sea and God destroys the most mighty army on the earth himself. So we wage war according to the way God has prescribed. And yes, our little ones do it too. Even the little ones participate. It says in Psalm verse 8, Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, I have declared strength. What's the rest of the verse? To silence the enemy and the avenger. What does that mean? When our little ones open up their mouths in church and sing praise to God, they are striking heavy blows against the evil one. That's why when I hear them singing in the back room, I smile because they are landing blows against the devil when they do that. And even when our little ones, the littlest ones, make their noises and their cooing sounds, and yes, maybe even some cries, the Bible says that too is warfare. Everybody participates. This is how we do it. We gather together as God's people. We, we pray the psalms, we sing hymns, we hear the word, we pray, we participate in the sacraments, and that is how we fight. That is how we fight. But the second thing is that we also have to prepare. We also have to follow Joseph's example, and we have to prepare, and we have to protect. And this, this leads me to my second point, which is we have to be about protecting and training up the heritage of Christ the coming generation. That is a vital part of our warfare against the enemy because if we do not do our part in raising up the next generation, the evil one will win. This is our role. It may seem school marmy, like this task of basically running a school and educating kids, but this is, this is warfare. This is what we are called to do. We have a unique opportunity, of course, in Ithaca, with students from IC and Cornell and grad students and postdoctoral people, and many of you are involved in, some of you are involved in, others listening will be in, are involved in those things. We do have a unique opportunity to reach, help reach the world through our influence in this congregation, but we, can, we also cannot forget our duty 
and our obligation and our mission to also train up the children of this community, to reach families and and to, to raise up the coming generation. And we, we, we have, this is raising up and, and, and cultivating the heritage of Christ. This word heritage is a little bit of a, has a little bit of a bad connotation because it's a word used by, by nationalists, Christian nationalists, white nationalists. Um, they use the word heritage in a negative way, but the word heritage is deeply biblical. It refers to, to the, to, to our progeny, what we are leaving to the next generation. And the heritage of the Messiah is something that is very important in the Psalms. Very important. We need to sort of redeem the idea of leaving a heritage for the future. The Psalms talk about little children being quivers, arrows in a quiver of a father. And I realize this verse has been misused by some uh, to say you should have as many children as you possibly can. In the context of the community of God's people, it refers not only to our physical and genetic children, but all the children in the assembly. All the children in our assembly are little arrows in our quiver. And so whether you have kids or whether you don't have kids, whether your kids are grown, these are all our little arrows. And it is our duty to raise up the heritage of Messiah. This is our warfare. This is what we are called to do and to be to fight battle through our liturgical warfare and to prepare and protect the coming generation. As Joseph shows us. You know, we're coming up on the second anniversary of, I think maybe the third anniversary of the Ukraine war starting. Second? Second. I I thought so. I should have just stayed with it. We'll edit that part out. Second generation of the Ukraine war. And, and, and I know as time has is, is gone on, just, just harken back. Remember back to the early days of that war. I know many of us sort of felt this solidarity. Many hopefully still do solidarity with the people who had their land invaded. But we were inspired by the resiliency. By, we were inspired by the courage and the commitment that we saw in the Ukrainian people. By the way, that still is going on even though it's sort of subsided, especially after the goings-on in Gaza. But one of the things that inspired us about the Ukrainian people is their resiliency and their courage and their fortitude in standing up against a big, bigger, bigger bully. And we, we, many of us gained a lot of uh, inspiration from that. As an example of what what uh, you know you know what we, what we what we could be as human beings, an example of this in our own country is uh, is is represented by actually a place not too far from here. When 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 December seventh, nineteen forty one happened, Pearl Harbor happened. America was not ready to engage the enemy on that scale. But after Pearl Harbor and the declaration of war on Japan and then on Germany, the United States had an immense mobilization effort to get the country ready for war. One of the places that happened was just, I think I've got my bearings right, on the east shore of Seneca Lake, a place that's called Sampson State Park. Anybody ever been to Sampson State Park? Sampson State Park is there because once it was the Sampson Navy Training Center. After 
after Pearl Harbor, the United States had to quickly mobilize the civilians for war. And one of the places they did it was right over there. They built this training military base out of the farmland. And before a year had happened, in fact, from start to finish, 277 days, they had built this massive facility, including an armory, a football stadium, gymnasium, hospital, of course, barracks and training facilities. Over 400,000 sailors were trained over there at, uh, at Samson. It was amazing what we did in this country to mobilize and get ready when we understood we were fighting against a foe that needed it. That's exactly what motivates the Ukrainian people. They understand that they are at war. And what this text today is is putting before us is we also need to understand that we are at war. And in fact, a war that has much higher consequences than those two wars. Because this war has effects, the results have effects on our eternal destinations. We are at war. And And taking inspiration from what happened just over there and what we see today in places like Ukraine and other places where people are under threat too. We need to understand that this needs to be our mentality. This needs to be our mentality. We're not to jettison the teaching that we find in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, all that still holds true, that we are to build houses and live in them and plant, plant vineyards and give our sons and daughters in marriage and seek the welfare of the city. All of that is true. But we do that while we understand they are, we are waging war and we are preparing and protecting in this great battle. It is so urgent that we do this. Because if the devil would do what we read about today, what we read about today, if Satan would do that, he will stop at nothing to win and so we must also be engaged in the fight as well let's pray thank you for listening to this week's podcast please rate and review us on your podcast service and share with anyone who may be interested the intro and outro music for the new life podcast is provided by sandra mccracken with her permission please visit her website at sandramccracken.com we'll see you next week